0: Part Two of The Dueling Machine by Ben Bova and Myron R. Lewis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Greg Marguerite. Part Two of The Dueling Machine by Ben Bova and Myron R. Lewis. Chapter Six. The space station orbiting around Aquitania—the capital planet of the Aquitaine Cluster—served simultaneously as a transfer point from starships to planet ships, a tourist resort, a meteorological station, communications center, scientific laboratory, astronomical observatory, medical haven for allergy and cardiac patients, and military base it was in reality a good-sized city with its own markets its own local government and its own way of life dr leoh had just stepped off the debarking ramp of the starship from Zarno. the trip there had been pointless and fruitless but he had gone anyway in the slim hope that he might find something wrong with the dueling machine that had been used to murder a man A shudder went through him as he edged along the automated customs scanners and paper checkers. What kind of people could these men of Kerak be? To actually kill a human being in cold blood? To plot and plan the death of a fellow man? Worse than barbaric. Savage. He felt tired as he left customs and took the slideway to the planetary shuttle ships halfway there he decided to check at the communications desk for messages that star watch officer that sir harold had promised him a week ago should have arrived by now the communications desk consisted of a small booth that contained the output printer of a communications computer and an attractive young dark-haired girl automation or not leo thought smilingly there were certain human values that transcended mere efficiency A lanky, thin-faced youth was half-leaning on the booth's counter, trying to talk to the girl. He had curly blond hair and crystal blue eyes. His clothes consisted of an ill-fitting pair of slacks and tunic. A small traveler's kit rested on the floor at his feet. So, I was sort of, well, thinking maybe somebody might, uh, show me around a little. He was stammering to the girl, "I've never been uh here. It's the most beautiful planet in the galaxy." The girl was saying, "Its cities are the finest yes, well, i I was sort of thinking that is, I know we just uh, met a few minutes ago, but well, maybe if you have a free day or so coming up, maybe maybe we could uh sort of she smiled coolly." I have two days off at the end of the week, but I'll be staying here at the station. There's so much to see and do here, I very seldom leave." Oh. You're making a mistake, Leo interjected dogmatically. If you have such a beautiful planet for your home world, why in the name of the gods of the intellect don't you go down there and enjoy it? I'll wager you haven't been out in the natural beauty and fine cities you spoke of since you started working here on the station. Why, you're right," she said, surprised. You see, you youngsters are all alike. You you never think further than the ends of your noses. You should return to the planet, young lady, and see the sunshine again. Why don't you visit the university at the capital city? Plenty of open space and greenery, lots of sunshine and available young men. Leo was grinning broadly, and the girl smiled back at him. Perhaps I will, she said. Ask for me when you get to the university. I'm Dr. Leo. I'll see to it that you are introduced to some of the girls and gentlemen of your own age. Why, thank you, doctor. I'll do it this weekend. Good. Now, then, any messages for me? Anyone aboard the station looking for me? The girl turned and tapped a few keys on the computer's console. A row of lights flicked briefly across the console's face. She turned back to Leo. No, sir, I'm sorry. No message, and no one has asked for you." Hmm, that's strange. Well, thank you, and I'll expect to see you at the end of this week. The girl smiled a farewell. Leo started to walk away from the booth back toward the slideway. The young man took a step toward him, stumbled on his own traveling kit, and staggered across the floor for a half a dozen steps before regaining his balance. Leo turned and saw that the youth's face bore a somewhat ridiculous expression of mixed indecision and curiosity. Can I help you? Leo asked, stopping at the edge of the moving slideway. How—how did you do that, sir? Do what? Get that girl to agree to visit the university. I've been talking to her for half an hour, and, well, she wouldn't even look straight at me. Leo broke into a chuckle. Well, young man, to begin with, you were much too flustered. It made you appear over anxious. On the other hand, I am at an age where I can be strictly platonic. She was on guard against you, but she knows she has very little to fear from me. I see. I think. Well, Leo said, gesturing toward the slideway, I suppose this is where we go our separate ways. Oh, no, sir. I'm going with you. That is, I mean, you are Dr. Leo, aren't you?" Yes, I am. And you must be—Leo hesitated. Can this be a Starwatch officer? he wondered. The youth stiffened to attention, and for an absurd flash of a second Leo thought he was going to salute. I am junior lieutenant Hector, sir, on special detached duty from the cruiser SW4J188, home base Perseus Alpha-6. I see," Leo replied. Uh, is Hector your first name or your last? Both, sir. I should have guessed, Leo told himself. Aloud, he said. Well, Lieutenant, we better get to the shuttle before it leaves without us. They took the slideway. Half a second later, Hector jumped off and dashed back to the communications desk for his traveling kit. He hurried back to Leo, bumping into seven bewildered citizens of various descriptions and nearly breaking both legs when he tripped as he ran back onto the moving slideway. He went down on his face, sprawled across two lanes, moving at different speeds, and needed the assistance of several persons before he was again on his feet and standing beside Leo. "'I—I'm sorry to cause all that, uh, uh—commotion, sir.' "'That's all right. You weren't hurt, were you?' Uh, no, I I don't think so. Just embarrassed." Leo said nothing. They rode the slideway in silence through the busy station and out to the enclosed berths where the planetary shuttles were docked. They boarded one of the ships and found a pair of seats. Just how long have you been with Starwatch, Lieutenant? Six weeks, sir. Three weeks aboard a starship bringing me out to Perseus alpha six a, a week at the planetary base there, and two weeks aboard the cruiser s w four j one eight eight that is it's been six weeks since I received my commission. I've been at the academy the 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 star watch academy on Mars for four years. You got through the academy in four years. That's the regulation time, sir, yeah, I know. The ship eased out of its berth. There was a moment of free-fall, then the drive engines came on and the grav-field equilibrated. Tell me, Lieutenant, how did you get picked for this assignment? I wish I knew, sir, Hector said, his lean face twisting into a puzzled frown. I was working out a program for the navigation officer. Aboard the cruiser, I'm I'm pretty good at that. I can work out computer programs in my head, mostly. Mathematics was my best subject at the Academy." Interesting. Yes. Well, anyway, I I was working out this program when the captain himself came on deck and started shaking my hand, telling me that I was being sent on special duty on Aquitania by direct orders of the Commander-in-Chief. He seemed very happy—the captain, that is. He was, no doubt, pleased to see you get such an unusual assignment, Leo said tactfully. I'm not sure. Hector said truthfully. I I think he regarded me as some sort of a problem, sir. He had me on a different duty berth practically every day I was on board the ship. Well, now, Leo changed the subject. What do you know about psychonics? About what, sir? Eh, electroencephalography. Hector looked blank. Psychology, perhaps? Leo suggested hopefully. Physiology? computer electronics. I'm pretty good at mathematics. Yes, I know. Did you by any chance receive any training in diplomatic affairs? At the Star-Watch Academy? No, sir. Leo ran a hand through his thinning hair. Then why did the Star-Watch select you for this job? I, I must confess, Lieutenant, that I can't understand the workings of a military organization. Hector shook his head ruefully. Neither do I, sir. CHAPTER Seven. The next week was an enervatingly slow one for Leo, evenly divided between tedious checking of each component of the dueling machine and shameless rouses to keep Hector as far away from the machine as possible. The Starwatch man certainly wanted to help, and he actually was little short of brilliant in doing intricate mathematics completely in his head. But he was, Leo found, a clumsy, chattering, whistling, scatterbrained, inexperienced bundle of noise and nerves. It was impossible to do constructive work with him nearby. Perhaps you're judging him too harshly, Leo warned himself. You just might be letting your frustrations with the dueling machine get the better of your sense of balance the professor was sitting in the office that the aquitanians had given him in one end of the former lecture hall that held the dueling machine Leo could see its impassive metal hulk through the open office door the room he was sitting in had been one of a suite of offices used by the permanent staff of the machine but they had moved out of the building completely in deference to leo and the aquitanian government had turned the other cubby hall offices into sleeping rooms for the professor and the star watch man and an auto kitchen A combination cook valet handyman appeared twice each day morning and evening to handle any special chores that the cleaning machines and auto kitchen might miss Leo slouched back in his desk chair and cast a weary eye on the stack of papers that recorded the latest performances of the machine. Earlier that day, he had taken the electroencephalographic records of clinical cases of catatonia and run them through the machine's input unit. The machine immediately rejected them, refused to process them through the amplification units and association circuits. In other words, the machine HAD recognized the EEG traces as something harmful to a human being. Then how did it happen to Dulac? Leo asked himself for the thousandth time. It couldn't have been the machine's fault. It must have been something in Odal's mind that simply overpowered Dulac's. Overpowered? That's a terribly unscientific term, Leo argued against himself. Before he could carry the debate any further, he heard the main door of the big chamber slide open and then bang shut, and Hector's off-key whistle shrilled and echoed through the high-vaulted room. Leo sighed and put his self-contained argument off to the back of his mind. Trying to think logically near Hector was a hopeless prospect. "'Are you in, doctor?' Hector's voice rang out. "'In here.' Hector ducked in through the doorway and plopped his rangy frame on the office's couch. Everything going well, sir? Leo shrugged. Not very well, I'm afraid. I can't find anything wrong with the dueling machine. I can't even force it to malfunction. Well, that's good, isn't it? Hector chirped happily. In a sense, Leo admitted, feeling slightly nettled at the youth's boundless, pointless optimism. But... You see, it means that Canis' people can do things with the machine that I can't. Hector frowned, considering the problem. Hmm. Yes, I guess that's right too, isn't it? Did you see the girl back to her ship safely? Leo asked. Yes, sir, Hector replied, bobbing his head vigorously. She's on her way back to the communications booth at the space station. She said to tell you she enjoyed her visit very much. Good. It was... Uh, very good of you to escort her about the campus. It kept her out of my hair. What's left of it, that is." Hector grinned. Oh, I liked showing her around and all that, and, well, it sort of kept me out of your hair, too, didn't it? Leo's eyebrows shot up in surprise. Hector laughed. Doctor, I I may be clumsy and I'm certainly no scientist, but I'm not completely brainless. I'm sorry if I gave you that impression. Oh, no, don't be sorry. It didn't mean that to sound so, well, the way it sounded, that is. I know I'm just in your way. He started to get up. Leo waved him back to the couch. Relax, my boy, relax. You know, I've been sitting here all afternoon wondering what to do next. Somehow, just now, I came to a conclusion. Yes? I'm going to leave the Aquitaine Cluster and return to Karine. What? you can't, I mean— Why not? I'm not accomplishing anything here. Whatever it is that this Odal and Canis have been doing, it's basically a political problem and not a scientific one. The professional staff of the machine here will catch up to their tricks sooner or later. But, sir, if you can't find the answer, how can they? Frankly, uh, I don't know. But, as I said, this is a political problem more than a scientific one. I'm tired and frustrated, and I'm feeling my years. I want to return to Karine and spend the next few months considering beautifully abstract problems about instantaneous transportation devices. Let Massan and the Star Watch worry about Canis. Oh, that's what I came to tell you. Massan has been challenged to a duel by Odal. What? This afternoon. Odal went to the council building, picked an argument with Massan right in the main corridor, and challenged him. "'Massan accepted?' Leo asked. Hector nodded. Leo leaned across his desk and reached for the phone unit. It took a few minutes and a few levels of secretaries and assistants, but finally Massan's dark-bearded face appeared on the screen above the desk. "'You have accepted Odal's challenge?' Leo asked without preliminaries. "'We meet next week.' Massan replied gravely. You should have refused. On what pretext? No pretext! A flat refusal based on the certainty that Odal or someone else from Kerak is tampering with the dueling machine. Massan shook his head sadly. My dear learned sir, you still do not comprehend the political situation the government of the aquitaine cluster is much closer to dissolution than i dare to admit openly the coalition of star groups that dulak had constructed to keep the kerak worlds neutralized has broken apart completely this morning Canis announced that he would annex Zarno. this afternoon odal challenges me i think i see of course the aquitanian government is paralyzed now until the outcome of the duel is known We cannot effectively intervene in the Zarno crisis until we know who will be heading the government next week. And, frankly, more than a few members of our Council are now openly favoring Canis and urging that we establish friendly relations with him before it's too late." But that's all the more reason for refusing the duel, Leo insisted. And be accused of cowardice in my own Council meetings? Massan smiled grimly. In politics, my dear sir, the appearance of a man means much more than his substance. As a coward, I would soon be out of office. But perhaps, as the winner of a duel against the invincible Odal, or even as a martyr, I may accomplish something useful." Leo said nothing. Massan continued. I put off the duel for a week, hoping that in that time you might discover Odal's secret. I dare not postpone the duel any longer. As it is, the political situation may collapse about our heads at any moment." I'll take this machine apart and rebuild it again, molecule by molecule," Leo promised. As Massan's image faded from the screen, Leo turned to Hector. We have one week to save his life. And avert a war, maybe, Hector added. Yes. Leo leaned back in his chair and stared off into infinity. Hector shuffled his feet, rubbed his nose, whistled a few bars of off-key tunes, and finally blurted, How can you take apart the dueling machine? Hmm? Leo snapped out of his reverie. How can you take apart the dueling machine? Hector repeated. Looks like a big job to do in a week. Yes, it is. But my boy, perhaps we, the two of us, can do it. Hector scratched his head. Well, uh... Sir, I'm not very—that is, my mechanical aptitude scores at the Academy—Leo smiled at him. No need for mechanical aptitude, my boy. You were trained to fight, weren't you? We can do the job mentally. CHAPTER Eight. It was the strangest week of their lives. Leo's plan was straightforward to test the dueling machine, push it to the limits of its performance by actually operating it, by fighting duels. They started off easily enough, tentatively probing and flexing their mental muscles. Leo had used the dueling machine himself many times in the past, but only in tests of the machine's routine performance, never in actual combat against another human being. To Hector, of course, the machine was a totally new and different experience. The Aquitanian staff plunged into the project without question, providing Leo with invaluable help in monitoring and analyzing the duels. At first Leo and Hector did nothing more than play hide-and-seek, with one of them picking an environment and the other trying to find his opponent in it. They wandered through jungles and cities, over glaciers and interplanetary voids, seeking each other without ever leaving the booths of the dueling machine. Then, when Leo was satisfied that the machine could reproduce and amplify thought patterns with strict fidelity, they began to fight light duels. They fenced with blunted foils. Hector won, of course, because of his much faster reflexes. Then they tried other weapons—pistols, sonic beams, grenades—but always wearing protective equipment. Strangely, even though Hector was trained in the use of these weapons, Leo won almost all the bouts. He was neither faster nor more accurate when they were target shooting. But when the two of them faced each other, somehow Leo almost always won. The machine projects more than thoughts, Leo told himself. It projects personality. They worked in the dueling machine day and night, now enclosed in the booths for twelve or more hours a day, driving themselves and the machine's regular staff to near exhaustion. When they gulped their meals between duels they were physically ragged and sharp-tempered. They usually fell asleep in Leo's office while discussing the results of the day's work. The duels grew slowly more serious. Leo was pushing the machine to its limits now, carefully extending the rigors of each bout. And yet, even though he knew exactly what and how much he intended to do in each fight, it often took a conscious effort of will to remind himself that the battles he was fighting were— actually imaginary. As the duels became more dangerous and the artificially amplified hallucinations began to end in blood and death, Leo found himself winning more and more frequently. With one part of his mind he was driving to analyze the cause of his consistent success, but another part of him was beginning to really enjoy his prowess. The strain was telling on Hector. The physical exertion of constant work and practically no relief was considerable in itself, but the emotional effects of being hurt and killed repeatedly were infinitely worse. Perhaps we should stop for a while, Leo suggested after the fourth day of tests. No, I'm all right. Leo looked at him. Hector's face was haggard, his eyes bleary. You've had enough, Leo said quietly. Please, don't make me stop, Hector begged. I—I I can't stop now. Please, give me a chance to do better. I'm improving. I lasted twice as long in this afternoon's two duels as I did in the ones this morning. Please, don't end it now. Not while I'm completely lost." Leo stared at him. "'You want to go on?' "'Yes, sir.' "'And if I say no?' Hector hesitated. Leo sensed he was struggling with himself. "'If you say no—' he answered dully, then it will be no, I can't argue against you any more. Leo was silent for a long moment. Finally he opened a desk drawer and took a small bottle from it. Here, take a sleep capsule. When you wake up, we'll try again. It was dawn when they began again. Leo entered the tooling machine determined to allow Hector to win. He gave the youthful Star Watch man his choice of weapon and environment. Hector picked one-man scout ships in planetary orbits. Their weapons were conventional force beams. But despite his own conscious desire, Leo found himself winning. The ships spiraled about an unnamed planet, their paths intersecting at least once in every orbit. The problem was to estimate your opponent's orbital position and then program your ship so that you arrived at that position either behind or to one side of him. Then you could train your guns on him before he could turn on you. The problem should have been an easy one for Hector, with his knack for intuitive mental calculation. But Leo scored the first hit. Hector had piloted his ship into an excellent firing position, but his shot went wide. Leo maneuvered around clumsily, but managed to register an inconsequential hit on the side of Hector's ship. In the next three passes, Leo scored two more hits. Hector's ship was badly damaged now. In return, the Starwatch man had landed one glancing shot on Leo's ship. They came around again, and once more Leo had outguessed his younger opponent. He trained his guns on Hector's ship, then hesitated with his hand poised above the firing button. Don't kill him again, he warned himself. His mind can't accept another defeat. But Leo's hand, almost of its own will, reached the button and touched it lightly. Another gram of pressure and the guns would fire. In that instant's hesitation, Hector pulled his crippled ship around and aimed at Leo. The watchman fired a searing blast that jarred Leo's ship from end to end. Leo's hand slammed down on the firing button. Whether he intended to do it or not, he did not know. Leo's shot raked Hector's ship, but did not stop it. The two vehicles were hurtling directly at each other. Leo tried desperately to avert a collision, but Hector bored in grimly, matching Leo's maneuvers with his own. The two ships smashed together and exploded. Abruptly Leo found himself in the cramped booth of his dueling machine, his body cold and damp with perspiration, his hands trembling. He squeezed out of the booth and took a deep breath. Warm sunlight was streaming into the high vaulted room. The white walls glared brilliantly. Through the tall windows he could see trees and people and clouds in the sky. Hector walked up to him. For the first time in several days, the watchman was smiling. Not much, but smiling. Well, we broke even on that one. Leo smiled back, somewhat shakily. Yes, it was quite an experience. I've never died before. Hector fidgeted. It's uh, not so bad, I guess. It does sort of, well, shatter you, you know?" Yes, I can see that now. Another duel? Hector asked, nodding his head toward the machine. Let's get out of this place for a few hours. Are you hungry? Starved. They fought seven more duels over the next day and a half. Hector won three of them. It was late afternoon when Leo called a halt to the tests. We can still get in another one or two, the watchman pointed out. No need, Leo said. I have all the data I require. Tomorrow Massan meets O'Dal unless we can put a stop to it. We have much to do before tomorrow morning. Hector sagged into the couch. Just as well. I think I've aged seven years in the past seven days. No, my boy, Leo said gently. You haven't aged. You've matured. Chapter 9 it was deep twilight when the ground car slid to a halt on its cushions of compressed air before the Kerak Embassy. I still think it's a mistake to go in there, Hector said. I mean, you could have called him on the tri-die just as well, couldn't you? Leo shook his head. Never give an agency of any government the opportunity to say, hold the line a moment, and then huddle together to consider what to do with you. Nineteen times out of twenty they'll end by passing your request up to the next higher echelon and you'll be left waiting for weeks." "'Still,' Hector insisted, "'you're simply stepping into enemy territory. It's a chance you shouldn't take.' "'They wouldn't dare touch us.' Hector did not reply, but he looked unconvinced. "'Look,' Leo said, "'there are only two men alive who can shed light on this matter. One of them is Dulak, and his mind is closed to us for an indefinite time.' Odal is the only other one who knows what happened. Hector shook his head skeptically. Leo shrugged and opened the door of the ground car. Hector had no choice but to get out and follow him as he walked up the pathway to the main entrance of the embassy. The building stood gaunt and gray in the dusk, surrounded by a precisely clipped hedge. The entrance was flanked by a pair of tall evergreen trees. Leo and Hector were met just inside the entrance by a female receptionist. She looked just a trifle disheveled, as though she had been rushed to the desk at a moment's notice. They asked for Odal, were ushered into a sitting-room, and within a few minutes, to Hector's surprise, were informed by the girl that Major Odal would be with them shortly. You see? Leo pointed out jovially. When you come in person they haven't as much of a chance to consider how to get rid of you. Hector glanced around the windowless room and contemplated the thick, solidly closed door there's a lot of scurrying going on on the other side of that door, I'll bet. I mean, they may be considering how to, uh, get rid of us permanently." Leo shook his head, smiling wryly. Undoubtedly the approach closest to their hearts, but highly improbable in the present situation. They have been making most efficient and effective use of the dueling machine to gain their ends. Odal picked this moment to open the door. Dr. Leo, uh, Lieutenant Hector, you asked to see me?" Thank you, Major Odal. I hope you will be able to help me," Leo said. You are the only man living who may be able to give us some clues to the failure of the dueling machine. Odal's answering smile reminded Leo of the best efforts of the robot puppet designers to make a machine that smiled like a man. I am afraid I can be of no assistance, Dr. Leo. My experiences in the machine are private." Perhaps you don't fully understand the situation, Leo said. In the past week we have tested the dueling machine here on Aquitania exhaustively. We have learned that its performance can be greatly influenced by a man's personality, and by training. You have fought many duels in the machines. Your background of experience both as a professional soldier and in the machines gives you a decided advantage over your opponents. However." Even with all this considered, I am convinced that you cannot kill a man in the machine, under normal circumstances. We have demonstrated that fact in our tests. An unsabotaged machine cannot cause actual physical harm. Yet you have already killed one man and incapacitated another. Where will it stop? Odal's face remained calm, except for the faintest glitter of fire deep in his eyes. His voice was quiet, but had the edge of a well-honed blade to it. I cannot be blamed for my background and experience, and I have not tampered with your machines." The door to the room opened and a short, thick-set, bullet-headed man entered. He was dressed in a dark street-suit, so that it was impossible to guess his station at the Embassy. Would the gentleman care for refreshments? he asked in a low-pitched voice. No, thank you, Leo said. Some Kerak wine, perhaps? Well. I don't, uh, think we better, sir," Hector said. That thanks all the same. The man shrugged and sat at the chair next to the door. Odal turned back to Leo. Sir, I have my duty. Massan and I duel tomorrow. There is no possibility of postponing it. Very well, Leo said. Will you at least allow us to place some special instrumentation into the booth with you, so that we can monitor the duel more fully? We can do the same with Masan. I know the duels are normally private, and you would be within your legal rights to refuse the request. But morally?" The smile returned to Odal's face. "'You wish to monitor my thoughts, to record them and see how I perform during the duel. Interesting. Very interesting.' The man at the door rose and said, "'If you have no desire for refreshments, gentlemen.' Odal turned to him. "'Thank you for your attention. Their eyes met and locked for an instant. The man gave a barely perceptible shake of his head, then left. Odal returned his attention to Leo. I am sorry, Professor, but I cannot allow you to monitor my thoughts during the duel. But— I regret having to refuse you, but as you yourself pointed out, there is no legal requirement for such a course of action. I must refuse. I hope you understand. Leo rose from the couch and Hector popped up beside him. I'm afraid I do understand, and I, too, regret your decision." Odal escorted them out to their car. They drove away, and the Kerak Major walked slowly back into the Embassy building. He was met in the hallway by the dark-suited man who had sat in on the conversation. I could have let them monitor my thoughts and still crush Masan, Odal said. It would have been a good joke on them. The man grunted. I have just spoken to the Chancellor on tri and obtained permission to make a slight adjustment in our plans." "'An adjustment, Minister Cor. "'After your duel tomorrow, your next opponent will be the eminent Dr. Leo,' Cor said." Chapter 10 The mists swirled deep and impenetrable about Ferned Massan. He stared blindly through the useless viewplate in his helmet then reached up slowly and carefully to place the infrared detector before his eyes. I never realized a hallucination could seem so real, Massan thought. Since the challenge by Odal, he realized the actual world had seemed quite unreal. For a week he had gone through the motions of life, but felt as though he were standing aside, a spectator mind watching its own body from a distance. The gathering of his friends and associates last night, the night before the duel, that silent funeral group of people, it had seemed completely unreal to him. But now, in this manufactured dream, he seemed vibrantly alive. Every sensation was solid, stimulating. He could feel his pulse throbbing through him. Somewhere out in those mists he knew was Odal, and the thought of coming to grips with the Assassin filled him with a strange satisfaction. Massan had spent a good many years serving his government on the rich but inhospitable high-gravity planets of the Aquitaine Cluster. This was the environment he had chosen. Crushing gravity, killing pressures, atmosphere of ammonia and hydrogen laced with free radicals of sulfur and other valuable but deadly chemicals, oceans of liquid methane and ammonia, solid ground consisting of quickly crumbling, eroding ice howling, super-powerful winds that could pick up a mountain of ice and hurl it halfway around the planet. Darkness, danger, death. He was encased in a one-man protective outfit that was half armored suit, half vehicle. There was an internal grab field to keep him comfortable in 3.7 G's, but still the suit was cumbersome and a man could move only very slowly in it, even with the aid of servo motors. The weapon he had chosen was simplicity itself, a hand-sized capsule of oxygen. But in a hydrogen-ammonia atmosphere, oxygen could be a deadly explosive. Massan carried several of these bombs. So did Odal. But the trick, Massan thought to himself, is to know how to throw them under these conditions. The proper range, the proper trajectory. Not an easy thing to learn without years of experience. The terms of the duel were simple. Massan and Odal were situated on a rough-topped iceberg that was being swirled along one of the methane-ammonia ocean's vicious currents. The ice was rapidly crumbling. The duel would end when the iceberg was completely broken up. Massan edged along the ragged terrain. His suit's grippers and rollers automatically adjusted to the roughness of the topography. He concentrated his attention on the infrared detector that hung before his viewplate. A chunk of ice the size of a man's head sailed through the murky atmosphere in a steep glide peculiar to heavy gravity and banged into the shoulder of massan's suit. The force was enough to rock him slightly off balance before the servos readjusted massan withdrew his arm from the sleeve and felt the inside of the shoulder seam dented but not penetrated. A leak would have been disastrous, possibly fatal. Then he remembered. Of course, I cannot be killed except by direct action of my antagonist. That is one of the rules of the game." Still, he carefully fingered the dented shoulder to make certain it was not leaking. The dueling machine and its rules seemed so very remote and unsubstantial compared to this freezing, howling inferno. He diligently set about, combing the iceberg, determined to find Odal and kill him before their floating island disintegrated. He thoroughly explored every projection, every crevice, every slope, working his way slowly from one end of the berg toward the other, back and forth, cross and recross, with the infrared sensors scanning 360 degrees around him. It was time-consuming. Even with the suit servo-motors and propulsion units, motion across the ice against the buffering wind was a cumbersome business. But Massan continued to work his way across the iceberg fighting down a gnawing, growing fear that Odal was not there at all. And then he caught just the barest flicker of a shadow on his detector. Something or someone had darted behind a jutting rise of the ice, off by the edge of the iceberg. Slowly and carefully, Massan made his way toward the base of the rise. He picked one of the oxybombs from his belt and held it in his right-hand claw. Massan edged around the base of the ice cliff and stood on a narrow ledge between the cliff and the churning sea. He saw no one. He extended the detector's range to maximum and worked the scanners up the sheer face of the cliff toward the top. There he was. The shadowy outline of a man etched itself on the detector screen, and at the same time Massan heard a muffled roar, then a rumbling, crashing noise, growing quickly louder and more menacing. He looked up the face of the ice-cliff and saw a small avalanche of ice tumbling, sliding, growling toward him. That devil set off a bomb at the top of the cliff! Massan tried to back out of the way, but it was too late. The first chunk of ice bounced harmlessly off his helmet, but the others knocked him off balance so repeatedly that the servos had no chance to recover. He staggered blindly for a few moments as more and more ice cascaded down on him and then toppled off the ledge into the boiling sea. Relax, he ordered himself. Do not panic. The suit will float you. The servos will keep you right side up. You cannot be killed accidentally. Odal must perform the coup de grace himself. Then he remembered the emergency rocket units in the back of the suit. If he could orient himself properly, a touch of a control stud on his belt would set them off and he would be boosted back onto the iceberg. He turned slightly inside the suit and tried to judge the iceberg's distance through the infrared detector. It was difficult, especially since he was bobbing madly in the churning currents. Finally, he decided to fire the rocket and make final adjustments of distance and landing site after he was safely out of the sea. But he could not move his hand. He tried, but his entire right arm was locked fast. He could not budge it an inch. And the same for the left. Something or someone was clamping his arms tight. He could not even pull them out of their sleeves. Massan thrashed about, trying to shake off whatever it was. No use. Then his detector screen was lifted slowly from the viewplate. He felt something vibrating on his helmet. The oxygen tubes! They were being disconnected! He screamed and tried to fight free. No use. With a hiss, the oxygen tubes pulled free of his helmet. Massan could feel the blood pounding through his veins as he fought desperately to free himself. Now he was being pushed down into the sea. He screamed again and tried to wrench his body away. The frothing sea filled his viewplate. He was under. He was being held under. And now, now the viewplate itself was being loosened. No! Don't! The scalding, cold methane ammonia sea seeped in through the opening viewplate. It's only a dream! Massan shouted to himself only a dream a, a-, a dream a- end of part 2 of the dueling machine by ben bova and myron r lewis